I just want to uh, read a, a, a word here from uh, Philippians on that. Paul's talking to the church at Philippi. Um, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's a big, big word there, content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, be, uh, know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ strengthen, who strengthens me. And so he goes on and he talks about uh, how he was so blessed the church gave to him at that time. So just want to encourage you to remember to give. Um, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Now, um, go ahead, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and, and uh, turn to John, 1 John chapter 1. This sermon, I, I titled it after I wrote it, but um, this verse came to me in a sermon that Pastor uh, was teaching on, and um, well, we'll just say that the title is Confess Your Sins. So sometimes I think we forget about the fundamentals. We talk about some abstract things, and we talk about um, practical life, which is, which is fine, but sometimes, in, in my mind, being an engineer, I like to analyze, I like to get into it, but I don't want today to be a detailing of the components of a gasoline engine or why a quantum computer works, okay? That's not my point. But I do want you to hopefully appreciate what the Word has to say about what Jesus did and does. Um, I think that it's important because it's written in here. And if it's written in here, He wants us to understand it or at least know it. Okay? We don't understand everything. We need the Holy Spirit to help us, and I think that comes progressively through our lives. The Holy Spirit constantly is teaching us through life applications and through teachings by maybe from others of what not to do, right? But let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that you open our eyes. Let us hear what you have to say. Remind us again to the depths of our hearts how you do or why you do what you do for us, maybe getting at a little bit of how you love us so much. We just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read the first nine verses, but I'm going to basically touch on those, and then we're going to focus on 1 John 1, 9 today as our primary verse that we'll get into. So here, here we go. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. That sounds like a testimony, right? We've seen, heard, touched, and this word of life we know is Jesus. The life was made manifest. Manifest, we, it's become obvious. 
and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship here being believing in this life, in this light, right? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he kind of shares that we want to have fellowship together with the Father and the Son and complete our joy. Verses 5 and 6, God is light and we cannot have fellowship with him if we walk in the dark. Okay? Mutually exclusive. Can't have both at the same time, light or dark. Walk, verse 7, walk in his light and fellowship with one another and be cleansed. And 8, don't be deceived. And verse 9 is our text for today. That's where I want to focus on this verse. There's a condition in this verse, verse 9 as well as two parallel statements that result from the condition. That's what I want to get at. And I'm going to hone in on one word, and then I'm going to expand that a little bit as we get through some scriptures. So, first of all, the condition. If we confess our sins. Simple, right? Simple. We must confess. Yeah? How about that? We must confess our sins. But what does that mean? It's always safe, I think, to let the Bible interpret itself. So let's look at these scriptures. First of all, Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Another Psalm of David. Now the verse that I want to get to is verse 5, but we'll read through these first four verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in those whose spirit there is no deceit. We're seeing some parallels back to 1 John. For when I kept, now this is interesting, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Sounds like guilt. Sounds like guilt of sin. Your bones 
wasted away. You feel the pressure of his heavy hand like the heat of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So he acknowledged and he didn't hide it. That's confession. Let's look at Psalm 51. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. And this is a peculiar, not peculiar, but if you know the story of David, you remember that he saw Bathsheba naked and bathing on a rooftop. And he called for her and he went into her. And eventually she became pregnant. She was not his wife. She was actually married to another man whom was one of the battle, one of the warriors in the battle. And David made it happen such that that man would die. And this is a big lie that continued, right? So this says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And this is the time when Nathan made it clear, you've sinned, it's you. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Remember those terms. We'll get into those later. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, the last part of verse 4 ties back to the have mercy in verse 1 and the blot out my transgressions and the wash me thoroughly. He's asking God to be a just judge. He's asking for it. And then finally, Proverbs, 30, or Proverbs 28, verses 13 and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Calamity is disaster, right? So the condition that God requires here is that we confess our sin. He describes it. We don't hide it. We agree with him. It says, what I have written down here is that means we agree with him about how heinous it is that we've missed the high mark of his holiness in not keeping the entirety of his law perfectly. Nobody can, right? And that we're unable to make it right ourselves no matter what we do. All right, that's confession. That's, that's pretty vulnerable. You know, we like to think, I can do it. I'm, I'm good. I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I, we, we justify it in our own minds, but God wants you to call it a spade, a spade. It's sin. He hates sin. So, let's go on to a couple of adjectives he uses now. We know that the condition that God requires is confession of sin. But what is it that follows? What is God's response? 
And this is where the two parallels come in, but we, we'll get to the parallels later. First, he gives us a couple of describing adjectives about his nature. He's faithful and just. And I always used to just, I, w- I think I would hear the faithful and forget about the just part. So I want to get into that a little bit today. So he's faithful. It's an attribute or quality applied to both God and man. When, when used of God, and it has in the Old Testament a twofold emphasis, referring first to his absolute reliability, firm constancy, and complete freedom from arbitrariness or fickleness. That's a definition out of, uh, out of the New International Dictionary. He's not fickle. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's not arbitrary. You can trust because he has consistencies, constant, right? Uh, And he's also, uh, his steadfast love, it also refers to his steadfast love towards his people and his loyalty. He is loyal, so he's faithful. So these are terms we think about when we think of faithful. Uh, God is constant and true in contrast to all that is not God, right? He's totally different than everything else. He's, he's focused. He's, he's consistent. He's faithful in keeping his promises and therefore worthy of trust. He is unchangeable in his ethical nature. He has a law. He has values. He, he, he tells us his attributes. He cannot deny himself. His faithfulness is usually connected with his gracious promises of salvation. Now, a legal dictionary, Black's Law, you may have heard of it, says he's trustworthy, says this means trustworthy and honoring vows, promises, or allegiances. Loyal. Trust, tr- uh, truthful, worthy of belief or confidence. So he's trustworthy, he's faithful. We know when Lamentations chapter 3, I think, is my favorite set of verses in 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's our God. Psalm 143.1, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. And this is the best, I think. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I think this gets to the essence here. Verse 11, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot be anything but loyal, faithful, trustworthy. That's who he is. So, faithful. Now, to that little word just, which gets to be deep, I think. What does it mean? It says he is just. He's faithful and just. Faithful and just. He's just. It's not he's just God. He's, he's just. What does it mean to be just? Again, Black's Law Dictionary describes it as legally right, lawful, equitable. It's fair. He's going to do what's right. 
Noah Webster in his American Dictionary in the English Language from 1828 gives us a few definitions. In a moral sense, upright, honest, having principles of rectitude, which is another way of saying equitable, or conforming exactly to the laws and to the principles of rectitude and social conduct, equitable in distribution of justice, that's in the distribution of justice, as a just judge. So he dispenses justice. If you did wrong, you, you're punished. If you did right, you're rewarded. He handles it fairly. He's conformed to the rules of justice, doing equal justice. He's impartial, allowing what is due, giving fair representation of character, whether merit or demerit. So, so we talked about just. So a just God must dispense justice. So what is justice? Again, I'll read from Noah Webster. The virtue which consists of giving to everyone what his, is his due. Practical conformity to the laws and to the principles of rectitude. There's that big word again. In the dealings of men with each other. Honesty. And a distributive justice belongs to magistrates or rulers. and consists in distributing to every man that right or equity which the laws and principles of equity require. So that's a lot of definition for just and justice. But let's maybe take a practical approach. Imagine that you're a judge. Anybody in here a judge? No, I'm not a judge either. But your job as a judge is to uphold and execute the law, right? Your, your guide is the law. It's the bar. It's the thing that you have to follow. That's all. It's the only standard you must adhere to, and you must do it unflinchingly. That means sometimes motion gets in the way, but the facts are the facts, the law. One day a man stands before you, a vile, wicked murderer. The evidence against him is ironclad. There's no doubt about his guilt. He openly admits it. He confesses what he did and says he's very sorry. Then he asks you to forgive him. And in spite of what the law says, in spite of your responsibility to dispatch justice, you grant him complete forgiveness and let him walk free. Now, we'd certainly be horrified if a human judge operated that way. Right? Because justice was not served. But that's exactly what our judge in heaven has done, right? In spite of the clear standard of his law, in spite of the overwhelming evidence of our sin and corruption, he sweeps aside our crimes, washes away our guilt, and sets us free from the due penalty of sin. How can he do that and uphold his own holy law? Well, we're going to get back to that question, so hold on. Now to the two parallel statements. We've established that he's faithful and just. We've talked about what that means. Now there are two parallel actions that come after the condition. To forgive our sins, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two things that are pretty intertwined, but I'll show you how that works. So forgiveness means to give up resentment 
or claim to requittal. Now, what's requittal? Come on, Brian, quit using these big words. Something given in return uh, on account of the offense. So the offense may be a deprivation of a person's property, rights, or honor, or maybe a violation of moral law. The normal conditions for forgiveness are repentance, return, and the willingness to make reparation or atonement. Make it right. That's what, basically, you're willing to make it right. Okay? And the effect of forgiveness is the restoration of both parties to the former state of relationship. Forgiveness is super important. And, and we, pastors preached on that many times. You not forgiving one another can block a relationship with the Father. You have to remember that you've been forgiven much more than anybody has, that you have against anybody else because of what you've done. This, with you, this is where we're talking here. So here's the first parallel statement. So we talked about he's faithful and just, and then we have these these par- these these, these uh, outcomes to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. So the first parallel, the faithful, ties to the forgiveness. He is faithful to forgive us our sins. That's how those connect. Remember, the required condition is confession. And because our confession conforms to God's view of our sin, we have to see it the way God does. He responds to our acknowledgement of that truth by extending forgiveness to us. His desire is always reconciliation. He wants to respond. His faithfulness forgives us because we've confessed. Yet if we deceive ourselves and have no fellowship with Him because we walk in the darkness, don't practice the truth, and we say we have no sin, then there's no place for reconciliation. We have to confess. It's God's law. And therefore, his terms. He's the judge. And I think the picture here is like someone who sticks closer than a brother, a true friend. Someone never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's the faithfulness and the quickness to forgive us when we've confessed. That's who our Savior is. Jesus Christ, our advocate. And I think that the next action that we see here, we talked about cleanse us from our sins. We all know what cleanse means, I hope. You get scrubbed up. You become clean. You no longer have the soil and stain of the activities you were previously involved in. Well, I mean, why do we take a shower? You get cleaned up. You get scrubbed up. You get, get the muck off of you. But this action involves cleansing us from unrighteousness. And here we see a second parallel statement. Remember, he's faithful, forgives us of our sins. He is just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the just is very important here because the cleansing can't occur without him being just first. Since the soil and stain of unrighteousness is deeply penetrating, we can't just wash it off with ordinary soap and water. In fact, we can't even wash ourselves of unrighteousness. Psalm 51.5, which we did not read, is not coming up, says we were conceived in sin. And therefore, we cannot escape our sinful nature by our own means. 
we are wholly corrupt from conception. That's bad news. So what is involved in our cleansing by God? And I want to go through, some, through this last parallel statement with some scriptures. We'll go back to and look at 1 John 1.7. Again, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Christ. Interesting. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why is he called righteous? He kept the whole law. He doesn't have any sin. He's righteous. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. I don't think I use that in everyday discussions with people. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Propitiation. Propitiation. It's in the Bible. Romans 3. This is packed full, but I'm trying to try to stay on track here. Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, shown, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it or testify to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's bad news. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We've talked about that. And, verse 24, are justified, uh uh-oh, another just word, justified by His grace as a gift. It's a gift. The best one you can get. Through the redemption that is with Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. You know what redemption is. You take your aluminum cans in, you get a nickel apiece. That's a redemption, right? It's a trade. So Christ traded something here. We got the benefit of that, did we not? Whom God put forward as a, here it is again, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Belief. We're going to believe. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he held off, he looked over it. He passed, had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, we're going to get to all that stuff, but I'm not going to do it in that set of verses. But there it is again, so that he might be just and the justifier. It gets back, hint, gets back to propitiation. Now, there's a lot of grace there. There's grace. It's a gift. All of that's a gift. Jesus gave us something. God gave us. And we sometimes think about the Old Testament as it's all law, and the New Testament's all grace. Well, that's not really true. Grace has always been there, and the law has always been there too. But it's maybe how we looked at it. But I want to take you to Leviticus 17 briefly, because I want to show you that grace has always been there. 
Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh, this is in a command, in a series of commands not to eat or drink the blood of the animal sacrifices. Okay, I didn't give you all the rest of that, but here's the, here's the little nugget. For the life of the blood is in the, or life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So it's always been about the blood. In this case, he accepted the blood of the animals because he was looking forward to Christ. But it's still about grace. He accepted it. He gave it. Because that blood was worth nothing. But God accepted it because of what he knew was going to happen on the cross. Hebrews testifies to this in chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience and dead works to serve the living God? You see, we have a better sacrifice. We have the blood from the great high priest. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That sounds like a gift. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So it's all about Jesus. But what Jesus did makes a big difference in our lives. And I'll go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, that sounds like justice, right? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. Ransomed. He paid your ransom to get you out from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I think it's really interesting here, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, because Jesus was so much greater than an animal. His, it's, it's, it's unspeakable how great he is. He was foreknown, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, who showed him in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He seals it all up. He brings it together. Jesus accomplished it. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 talks about this. And they sang a new song. These are the elders. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people 
for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God that they shall reign on the earth. Now, I have another set of scriptures there I'm going to skip. But if you want to read the outcome of that in Revelation 12, we have the victory. We've been ransomed by the blood of Christ and cleansed of all unrighteousness. We have the victory over the enemy. The last chapter of the book is written because of the blood. So let's go back to the question that we left unanswered previously. How can a just God sweep away our sins, wash away our guilt, and set us free from the penalty due our sin while upholding his own holy law? He can't just look past our sin. There has to be justice. Because he's just. And he's going to make sure sin's punished. Let's take one last major set of scriptures here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You find that, Brian? This is, this is great. Let's go through it quickly. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? Have you confessed your sins? Are you a believer? Do you follow him? Do you keep his commandments? Do you fear him? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation had to happen for all these other things to happen. You can't praise him unless you're a new creation. You can't do anything unless you're a new creation. He has to create you. The old has passed away. Remember, you were conceived in sin. I was conceived in sin. He had to change me fundamentally. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is the gospel going forth. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's the gospel. You've sinned. You fall short. There's, there's an opportunity to be reconciled to the great judge of the universe. You have to confess your sin. But verse 21, and this is the meat of the just part, I think. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we have no righteousness. We are nothing but sin. He is righteous and has no sin in him. Speaking of Jesus. So God made him to be sin. He's the one who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness. Sounds like an exchange. How does that happen? Well, we've, we've mentioned this word propitiation a few times this morning. In fact, the Bible only mentions this word three times. 
So what does it mean? A perfect sacrifice was necessary. One that knew no sin. That kind of sacrifice could only come from God Himself. Remember, there's nothing we can do except confess our sin. God's genuine, active anger against sin demands punishment in order to be appeased precisely because He's just. Christ propitiated God. Propitiation is something you do to a person. Christ propitiated God by turning God's wrath away from guilty sinners and enduring the wrath Himself on the cross. The sin had to be punished. God has to punish sin. Jesus drew the wrath off of us and took it. Who became sin for us? Jesus. Who took the penalty of sin for us? Remember, the wages of sin is death. Who took that? Jesus. Who kept the law entirely, perfectly? Jesus. Who gave us his righteousness so we could have eternal life? You see, just, just having our sin paid for does not get us anywhere. It just protects us from the punishment. But we need righteousness to go to heaven. He gave us the righteousness. He said to God, they're mine. I paid for them. They're with me. That's a faithful Savior. Jesus Christ is our substitute. We call this in theology substitutionary atonement. He atoned for our sins in our place, our substitute. That's how God is faithful and just to forgive our, us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must confess our sin first. You can go ahead and stand. I'm going to close with one verse. Kind of carries on from the first verses that we had this morning. In Psalm 40, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Puts his faith in him. Confesses to him. He believes him, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. What John was trying to tell us is that if we're going to have fellowship with Christ, we have to walk in the light, we have to confess, and we have to proclaim. And we're not going to deceive ourselves or others about sin. Sin is ugly. Sin is worse than your worst nightmare. And it's worse than your worst experience. And God hates sin. And God must punish it. But thank God He put forth a sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You this morning. We thank You for these tough words in 
1 John, they're not that tough because it seems easy to confess sin. But our ego gets in the way. Our pride gets in the way. We, we want to make light of it. We, we think that it's not that bad. Little this or little that. But you hate sin. And you hate it more than we can actually understand. And Father, you have to punish sin. And you put forth Christ as the propitiation before the foundation of the world. You gave your only son. He shed his blood. He gave his life for the life of the flesh is in the blood. But Lord, he was the only one that could. He had a perfect life. He did no sin. But you put that sin, he took that sin willingly upon himself and drew away your wrath and appeased your anger so that now you can look at us and we can have fellowship and be reconciled. We thank you, Lord, for the magnitude of the glory that you have from that transaction. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be energized to give that good news to everyone that we can. Lord, to not to be conviction of their sin, that's the Holy Spirit's job, but to tell them of the good news that you've already taken care of the penalty and you want to welcome them to come to the table, to come into fellowship. Lord, I pray that we would be energized to do it with those around us at work and at play, wherever we are, our neighbors and so forth. Lord, I pray this week, give us opportunities to share the good news. Give us the opportunity to talk about how good you are. Maybe not use the word propitiation, Lord, but we we're going to use how good you are because you are faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go forth. Have a good week. Thank you.